morning. Boy, 2020 sure is uh, being a pretty boring year so far, isn't it? But you know, as our pastor was saying just a few minutes ago, God knew this was coming. Nothing that is happening has surprised him. Nothing has, has taken him off guard. He's not surprised by any of our, our overreactions to this, our underreactions to it, our fear, our confusion, our, our lack of paying attention to the news. So somebody's talking about something and we're not really sure what's going on because we haven't been watching it. He's not surprised by any of that. He's still on his throne. He's still in charge. He still has his hand on all of this. And isn't that kind of comforting? I mean, isn't that especially comforting when everything else is so discomforting out there? So let's take that comforting feeling that we have and let's do our best to infect people with that so that we can really make a difference, just a difference in that peaceful feeling so we can really make a difference in our community. We have been talking about, for several weeks now, sharing our faith, evangelism. Our, the title of this series has been One by One, and we've talked about this every, every week. Somebody being one by just one person. And the one we're talking about who's, who's doing the work here isn't Jesus. Now, he did the heavy lifting on the cross all those years ago. He's the one who gave his life for all of us. But that's not the one that, that we're talking about. The one that we're talking about is you. It's me. It's us. As we share our faith, as we live our lives, as we, as we seek to share him with a lost world, with a fallen culture, we are the ones that are doing the heavy lifting right now on the back of the heavy lifting that he that he already did I'm going to try my best not to cough too much as the pastor said I many years ago got awfully sick and neglected to go to the doctor because I was in my 20s and I thought you could cure anything with just extra coffee and some over-the-counter cough medicine and so I just kept putting off going to the doctor until I ended up with pneumonia. And as a result, every year I get this, this amazing bronchitis that just kind of sets me back. So I'm, I'm, past the, I'm past the infectious stage. It's what the doctor has assured me. Otherwise, I promise I wouldn't be here this morning, although maybe that's why the pastor has put me up front. So I'm, so I'm not with you this morning. I'm all the way up here. But... But every year I've got that. But I've got, I've got some uh, cough drops, I've got some Gatorade, and I've got my Bible, so I'm ready. Let's, let's do this. What is the cost? As we talk about counting the cost of sharing our faith, what is the cost of your faith to you? And I'm not talking about maybe you open your wallet and you give $20 to one of your coworkers and you say, you know, hey, here's, here's $20. Will you go tell my pastor that I led you to the Lord? So he'll be impressed with how spiritual I am. I mean, all that's going to do is just cost you $20. Your coworker will probably think it's pretty cool. But I don't know if it's going to impress your pastor too much. We're much more impressed 
when you, you live out your faith in small ways every day instead of in one big gesture once in a while. Because we know the small ways every day, is that's, that's the real sacrifice. But what is, what is the true cost of your faith? Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33. I'm going to read out of the Christian Standard Bible. And I think Ben's got it. I think he's ready. He's going to share it with us. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. So there's, there's an awful lot there, and it kind of talks about what the cost might be. And I'd like to start really in the middle of that section uh, with verses 28, 29, and 30. Which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to finish it? And I think that really makes sense. Don't we want to figure out the cost of something before we start it? I mean, if you're going to go car shopping, don't you check your savings account before you head to the car lot to see how much money you have? If you're going to plan a vacation, don't you try to figure out what things are going to cost at your destination, what it's going to cost to get there, and all of those little things that always come up. You've got to put gas in the car. You've got to have something to eat. You've got to get something to drink. You've got to pull over and get more gas, and by now everybody needs a snack. You've, you want to calculate all of that, right? And not just calculate it, but you need to kind of budget it, don't you? Because you don't want to spend all your money up front. You know, for years, as, as a young Christian in ministry, I just always assumed that teenagers were, were just basically bad with money. Because I would take kids on these out-of-town trips, and we'd be gone for five days. And I would encourage them to bring extra money you know, for snacks and posters and CDs and, and all the stuff. And inevitably, on the second day, at least one of those young people would come up to me, and they're all out of money for a bottle of Coke or an ice cream cone. Because they spent all of their extra money that first night inevitably that would happen. And I spent a long time thinking, well, you know, teenagers, some of them, they're not really good with money. And then I got a little older and I started working with some college students. And I figured out that most of them did the exact same thing. In fact, they did it a little bit easier because they didn't necessarily have mom and dad asking for an accounting on the phone every night of, well, I gave you $50, how much do you have left? And then I got a little bit older, and I started to pay attention to, to other areas of the church besides teenagers. And I realized every church I've been in 
has offered some sort of financial ministry to adults who basically live the same way. So I have basically determined that none of us are really good with money. Some of us might hide it a little bit better. But we all have kind of that immediate impulse to not count the cost. We don't always think things through financially. We don't always think through what is going to be the financial burden. What is it going to cost me by the end? And we haven't really thought that way in a lot of things, and especially, I think, when it comes to sharing our faith. Many of us come to the cross, and we get born again, and we're excited. We know we're going to spend eternity with Jesus. But then when it comes to sharing our faith, somewhere between the cross and sharing our faith, we kind of get derailed a little bit. And I think that has to do with how much it's going to cost us to share our faith, And we haven't necessarily considered what does it cost us to share? What does it cost us to do that? And certainly giving our testimony, we've had several testimonies so far as a part of this series. And they've gotten up here and they've they've shared their faith story with us. And, And I've heard so many people are impressed and I've heard so many other people who are just like, wow, that's great, but I could never do that. I could never get up in front of people and talk. And, you know, so many, so many surveys, survey after survey has confirmed that more people in this country list public speaking as a fear higher on the list than they list death. I think it was Jerry Seinfeld once made a joke saying that most Americans at a funeral would rather be in the coffin than up front giving the eulogy. And I think that's true. I think there is a cost to talking in front of people. There's a cost to talking about things you are not comfortable talking about. And for a lot of that us, that comes down to our faith. We're not comfortable talking about it because most of our stories, when we talk about our faith, we haven't led perfect lives before we came to know Jesus or even afterwards. And if we're really going to share our faith, then then we need to be honest. We need to be transparent. And that is really kind of hard to talk about who I really am in front of people. Even one-on-one, it's sometimes very hard to talk about who I really am. That's part of the cost. But let's see if we can establish what sort of bill God is going to deliver to us for the cost of sharing our faith, for living our faith. One of, my, one of my favorite stories in Mark chapter 10. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But the young man was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving, 
because he had many possessions. So Jesus right away lets him know, you know, only God is good. Don't walk around calling me good. Don't walk around calling each other good. Only God is good. Now that we've established the definition of what everybody is, none of us are good. Here's what you need to do. Work on the commandments. And the young man, I do all that. I've got that down. And then Jesus, filled with love for this young man, invites him to join him in ministry. Go and sell all your stuff. Give it to the poor. And then come with me. Had that young man done that, might he have been with Peter at the cross when Peter denied? Might he have given Peter the courage to not deny if there were two of them right there? Might he have been at the foot of the cross? Might this young man have written some of the New Testament? We'll never know. Because he went away sad because he owned a bunch of stuff. And he couldn't imagine getting rid of all of his stuff to follow Jesus. He couldn't pay that cost. So right away, as we kind of ask God to define, what is, what is that bill going to be? What's it going to cost us? Jesus tells this guy, look, it, it can cost you everything you own. I'm not saying this morning that it's going to. Don't go home and start putting all your stuff out on the curb. But it could cost you all of that. It might cost you all of that. Jesus requires right up front a commitment to pay the highest cost. You are signing up for a pretty heavy bill if you want to follow Jesus. That doesn't mean that bill's ever going to come due, but it might. And we need to be prepared for that. If I come to you and say I'm going to remodel your home, I'm going to do a lot of work on your property, I'm going to do a lot of work on your house, and it ends up costing you $8,000, now, if we have sat down and we have agreed that it's going to cost you $5,000, that's how much money you have budgeted for this, that's how much money you have saved, that's how much I have promised to do the work for, and then when I'm done, I give you a bill for $8,000, somebody, probably both of us before it's over, is going to be very unhappy because the bill has come in much higher than I said it would, much higher than you were prepared for. But if the exact same work is done, but I have told you it will cost 10000 and you have budgeted to pay me 10000 and you have set aside 10000 and saved 10000 and then I come to you at the end and I say it's going to cost you 8000 it's going to seem like a bargain, isn't it? You're going to be happy to have $2,000 extra in your pocket. Nobody's going to complain about that. If you budget for the highest amount, you always end up happier than if you try to budget to the lowest amount. Have you ever tried to grocery shop for like $10? I mean, I can't even park in the parking lot of Hitchcock's for less than $10. And that's if I'm just running in to buy something to drink. I always end up with something else in my hand by the time I get out into the parking lot. I mean, does anybody ever go to the store and it costs you less than you were wanting to spend or planning to spend? It always costs more, like, right? Always, like every time you're walking out to the parking lot thinking, how did that cost so much? And it seems like the more I spend, the fewer bags they end up giving me. 
But if we plan on that highest cost, then we're not surprised by the high bill when it comes in. Verses 26 and 27 of Luke 14 that I'd I'd read just a minute ago. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now that's pretty extreme language that Jesus was using. Hate is an awfully big word. It's an awfully heavy word, right? He's telling us right up front that the love we have for our family, now he's not telling us to hate our family because he knows we love our family, right? If you're a parent, you love your children. You would do anything, including laying down your life for your children. We love our family. And he is telling us that we ought to love him so much that the love we have for our family should look like hate compared to the amount of love we have for him. He's using this word hate to help us see the cost right up front that this could cost us relationally to do this. To do this Christian thing can cost us relationally because here's the reality. If you commit to serving Christ, it is going to cost you with your family. Maybe not hatred, maybe not fights, maybe not problems, maybe not stress and tension at home, but it is going to cost you. Because if you commit, Brother Scott has stepped down on faith to commit to to taking a big part in running the men's ministry here at the church. Brother Scott works during the week. He's got a limited number of free hours at home on the weekend. And for him to invest Saturday mornings into our men's ministry, that costs him at home. If you commit to serving at the food pantry, that is going to cost you some of your free time. If you commit to financially supporting a ministry here at the church or in our community, that is costing you actual money that you've earned at your job. If you commit to taking time away from your loved ones to serve him, that's costing you time with your loved ones. And let's think about it honestly. What is more precious than the time we have with the people we love? I mean, you can't put a price on that, right? I have been at the funerals of of family members, of close friends, and I have stood in funeral homes and at churches, and I've, I've looked at coffins, and I have thought to myself, I'd pay any price for one more conversation, one more cup of coffee, one more moment to just be together. It's the most precious thing we have. And if we are going to serve him, we're going to pay some of that. It's going to cost us some of that. We're going to pay that relationship bill. I encourage parents all the time, and it's, it's almost kind of lopsided. As, as you are aware, we've got most of our students on Wednesday night. They come to church on Wednesday nights. Their parents don't come, Sundays or Wednesdays. But I encourage parents all the time. I'm like, don't make church optional for your kids. Make them come to church. They may not want to get up early. They may not enjoy it. 
They may want to sleep in, but don't let it become optional. Pay that relationship cost. I'm not saying be a dictator and tell them you go to church or I'm going to break your arm. I'm not saying like that so that they they physically fear the consequences of not going to church. But pay that relationship cost and have a conversation with them. And sit down and, and talk with them about why your faith is important to you. And again, that's hard. Because you're going to have to be transparent about the stuff you struggle with. But don't let church become one of those optional things. Pay that relationship cost. If church is important to you, take that stand with your family, with your neighbors, with your friends who want to get together on Sunday morning and go out to breakfast. And let them know, not in a mean way, oh, I'm not like you heathens, I go to church. But maybe in a loving way, have that conversation about why church is more important to you than some of the other stuff. Pay that relationship cost. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, that's pretty heavy language. And, and we don't think of it because how many times on a Sunday morning do we hear the word cross? How many times do we sing it in our worship? I mean, you just you hear the word cross almost as often as you hear the word church or the word Jesus or the word God. So we don't necessarily realize this, this verse about carrying your cross. We don't realize what that meant in context at the time. But carrying your cross, that was a death sentence. Because in that time, and there, there wasn't this long time between a sentence being passed and the execution of that sentence. They would pass the death sentence on you and then hand you your cross to carry immediately. And you would have to carry this heavy burden of wood, stumbling and falling with this heavy thing. You would have to carry it to whatever place they had decided they were going to nail you to it and then hoist it up in the air so you could hang on it until you died. So when Jesus says you're going to carry your cross, what he means is death sentence. The death penalty. You're going to suffer a death penalty in your life. He's using heavy language. And what does that mean to pay a death penalty? Can your faith cost you your life? Certain parts of this planet in 2020, it certainly can. Does it mean that right here in Keystone Heights? Probably not. But it can cost you parts of your life. It can cost you some comfort. That cost can be so high. Could be our relationships, can be our time, could be our physical comfort. Or maybe God's gonna call you into the mission field. Maybe you're gonna be sleeping on sleeping on the ground somewhere so you can share the gospel maybe you're going to be learning a new language and part of a new culture so you can share the gospel maybe it means you're going to open your home so somebody 
has a, a couch to sleep on for a couple of weeks so you can share the gospel with them. Maybe it means if you want to serve God, you're going to go where God wants you to go and you're going to do what God wants you to do instead of getting to do what you want to do. You know, counting the cost was a, was a great big part of my testimony. Not before I met Christ, but afterwards. They always say that your, your, your testimony needs to, to really boil down to just three questions. What was your life like before you met God? What happened when you met God? And what has your life been like since? Well, before I met God, I was born and raised as a Catholic. Now that meant from the, the time I was born until I was 18 years old, I'll bet I didn't miss Sunday church any more than three times. And it might have just been twice, and I guess it's possible it was just once. We went to church every week. And I had those parents that you had to go to, the only excuse to not go to church, you had to be bleeding, like bad enough to be in a hospital emergency room, like anything that could be fixed with a Band-Aid, put a Band-Aid on and get in the car, we're going to church. You had to be physically ill. And not just, I feel like I might be physically ill, you had to be physically ill to the point where you were physically unable to get in the car and go to church. We always went. <coughs> and our church was very liturgical, very traditional. And we had all these rituals, and I was so used to that. And I grew up with this, this picture in my mind of God in heaven looking at my life, holding two ledgers. One that had my good deeds written down, and then another one that had each of my sins written down. And somewhere in my childhood, I am not making this up, I promise you this is true, somewhere in my childhood, at some point in a Sunday school class or somewhere, somebody said to me that wanting to sin was a sin. Planning to sin was a sin. So I was, I don't know, maybe six or seven years old when I heard that. So to my seven-year-old logic, I decided that if wanting to sin was a sin and planning to sin was a sin and then enjoying the sin was a sin, that was like three sins for every sin, which meant I had to do four good deeds to cancel out those three sins and then another one to kind of like put me back into the good side of the ledger. And so that is the math that I tried to live my life by this kind of like, how can I get into heaven math? And I sinned all the time. I was a typical kid. I lived very selfishly, and I spent all of this time. Every time I'd find myself enjoying something I shouldn't be doing, I'd automatically start listing, okay, what are some good deeds? Oh, I'm going to do the dishes tonight without being asked. I'm going to take out the trash before they ask me. And then later that night, they'd ask me to take out the trash, and I would throw some kind of a fit which meant like four more things I had to do. and I, I lived my life under this like crushing amount of math. You guys know I'm not good at math. This was hard for me. I spent my childhood constantly on this treadmill of trying to create good deeds that I could accomplish to try to get back into that good side of the ledger. At a certain point, 
as a young teenager in my room one night. I tearfully accepted the fact that I was going to spend eternity in hell because I realized that mathematically there was no way I was going to get into heaven. I just could not do it. And with this acceptance that I was never going to be able to get into heaven, I just kind of decided, as long as I'm going to pay the price for all these sins, I might as well, like, enjoy some of them, right? So I really started pursuing a sinful lifestyle because I figured, why not? There's no way I can undo any of this, so I might as well just, like, go all in on it. I literally accepted that I was hellbound and began to live my life that way. In December of 1991, I turned 18 years old. And I made this bargain with my dad because I didn't want to go to church anymore. Because church just made me feel bad because I was planning all these ways to enjoy my life and church was just like this interruption and this parade of sin. So I... I told my dad that I was mature enough to pick my own church and I'd kind of like to shop around and see what else is out there. Now my real plan, because honesty wasn't a problem for me because I was like all in on sin, my real plan was I'm just going to sleep on Sunday mornings. Or if I have to go somewhere, I'm going to go sit up at McDonald's. But my dad, who has always been smarter than me, said, sure, you can, you can check out some other churches. But every Sunday I want to see a church bulletin with that Sunday's date on it. So then I realized I was kind of stuck because now I said I'm going to another church. I got to find another church to go to, or at least I got to drive through the parking lot and see if anybody dropped a bulletin I could pick up. So I, I accepted an invitation. There was a girl in one of my classes that had always been inviting me to church. And I figured, well, if a pretty girl invites me to church, maybe that's a good enough reason to pick a church. So I went, and in this church, I began to hear the gospel, the real gospel, Jesus hanging on the cross for my sins, the fact that the number of sins I had didn't matter, and the number of good deeds I had, that didn't matter either. And I've never been a fast learner, ask any of my teachers, or my wife, or my pastor, I've never been a fast learner. It, it, months and months, I kept hearing this, and, and it, kept, it sounded too good to be true. And then one afternoon, in late summer, I'm walking around the county fair with a bunch of friends, and there was a, there was a church group there, and they were passing out Bible tracts, and don't ever think evangelism is wasteful, even when you don't see immediate results. Because some lady whose name I don't know, and I couldn't pick her out of a lineup, and I don't even know what church she went to, handed me a Bible tract and said, I'm going to pray for you tonight. And to be polite, I took it, and I stuck it in my back pocket, and I just kept walking with my friends. And I forgot all about her until later that night. I'm cleaning out my pockets, getting ready to do laundry. And I came across this Bible tract. I sat down on the floor in my room, and I read it. And then I read it again. And I read it again and again. I must have read through that 20 times wasn't that many pages long, five, six, seven, or eight. But I read through it, and I got my Bible. And I'm reading through it, and I'm looking up these verses. And I'm, this, is, this, this is too good to be true. There's got to be some kind of loophole here. Because I can't be allowed in heaven that easy. 
because my sin ledger is like there's a stack of ledgers and he keeps having to go get new pens because he's running out of ink and the good deed ledger he's still on the first one that he started when I was like three years old there's this can't be true a guy with this many sin ledgers cannot possibly be welcome into heaven but that night I gave my life to Christ because that night suddenly all of those sermons all of those talks all of those conversations with my youth pastor, all of those times sitting in Bible study, all of those youth group meetings, all of those Sunday morning sermons, suddenly it all made sense. That Jesus, he died for everybody, but he died for Mark. And he hung on that cross for Mark and for all of Mark's sins. And down on my knees, I accepted that I can go to heaven and I don't have to do any math. To get in. The night that I got saved, I had a trunk full of pornography in the trunk of my car. I was pursuing sin very aggressively in my life. And that didn't change the night that I gave my life to Christ. I enlisted in the army shortly after that. And God began to do this long work in my life. Long partly because God has patience. Long partly because I don't learn quick. But early after I was saved, this verse impressed upon my heart. Our youth pastor, he, he shared it with us in a, in a small group. Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You know what I thought that meant? I thought that meant that I was just going to have to get used to every night saying, I'm sorry for all the stuff I did today. And for a long time, that's what I did. Every night, God, I'm sorry for all the stuff I did today. And I'm sorry for all the stuff I'm planning to do tomorrow. And that was the cross I carried around. I spent four years in the army feeding my spiritual side, going out of my way to go to Bible studies, going out of my way to read the Bible, going out of my way to read Christian books, going out of my way to listen to sermons on, on tape, if you're old enough to remember tapes, back in the early 90s, while also feeding my sinful side, chasing sin as fast as I could. Because every night I'm just going to say I'm sorry, and that's the burden I'm carrying. But slowly, something began to happen in my heart, in my life. The Holy Spirit began to prompt me to make changes. You know, little things at first. Changing my language. Changing the way I talked to people. Changing the way I talked about people. Changing the way I talked to and about myself. Changing the way I thought about things. Changing the kind of entertainment that I put into my mind. Changing the kind of people that I spent time with. Changing the kind of people that I wanted to be around and wanted to impress and wanted to be like. He began to do this work. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And I began to realize that the cost wasn't my sin, 
Now, it kind of is because, believe it or not, I still continue to sin, just like all of you guys do. But that wasn't the cost. The cost was making the decision to walk away from those choices and to pursue him instead. Walking away from what I wanted. I have loved to write ever since I was a small child, and I had this dream I was going to someday go to college, and then I was going to go to Hollywood, and then I was going to write stuff, and I was going to have a lot of fun doing it, and then I was going to be rich. So I was going to be out in California, and I was going to be wealthy, and I was going to be writing, and life was just going to be great. And then I got saved, and I was going to go to California, and I was going to write, and I was going to enjoy it, and I was going to be wealthy. And then I was going to go to heaven at the end of all of that after I said I was sorry every night for all the sins that I had done because I thought that was my burden. And then God began to work in my life and let me know that denying myself meant that I had to walk away from the life that Mark wanted and chase the life that he wanted for me. Embrace the idea that he was calling me into ministry. Not so that I could be great, but so that I could talk about the one who was great. And I could share how great he was with a generation of fallen teenagers, with a generation of hurting families. Even after embracing that, I, I struggled. I'd be embarrassed to tell you for how many years I dreamt of being on staff at a great big church and writing books about youth ministry and touring the country and I was still going to write and I was still going to be kind of wealthy but I was going to be doing it for Christ at least that's what I told myself until the closer I got to Christ Christ really showed me that I'd have been doing that for myself not for him the cost is walking away from what I want So that's the cost in my life, was walking away from my plans because his plans for me are better. What's the cost in your life? I've got this, this part-time job. I got it several months ago. We had a financial hiccup here at the church. Shannon was transitioning from one job looking for another. And, and we just decided it'd be a good idea to keep paying our mortgage and to keep the electric turned on. So I went and I got this part-time job at Enterprise, washing cars. And I wear socks to work every day that I'm up there washing cars because that's part of the dress code. And I stand outside when it's cold outside. Remember a couple weeks ago when it was cold and rainy every day? I was outside all day in wet socks washing cars when it was like 40 degrees outside. You know, the other day when it was like in the low 90s, I was outside in wet socks washing cars. But you know what gets me out of bed in the morning to go to that job? It's not because I enjoy wearing wet socks and washing cars. It's because I look at that as a mission field. And it's a really, really great mission field. In the world of missionaries, I got it really easy because I sleep in my own bed and I get up and I drink coffee out of my own coffee pot and then I get in my car and I go all the way to the mission field down in Stark, Florida where I wash cars for 10 or 11 hours. 
but you have no idea how many people I've had a chance to, to, to talk to about spiritual things, how many spiritual conversations I've, I've had a chance to have. And I don't force that on anyone. I don't, I don't go and, and pick somebody up and, and right away start talking to them about religion and kind of put them off. I don't do that. But you'd be surprised how often people I'm driving around will bring that up. In fact, almost every day I've had a spiritual conversation since I've been there. I had a chance several weeks ago to buy lunch for somebody at Burger King. He, he, was, he was dressed like he was working outside and he was in line ahead of me and he ordered his food and he realized he didn't have his wallet. He must have left it at home that day. And I mean, he hadn't ordered like enough for 12 people or anything. He just got a sandwich and a Coke. And I said, well, I, you know, I got that. I'll pay for that. I'm working outside too. And if I forgot my wallet, I'd like to think somebody might buy me a, a hamburger and something to drink. And so we had a chance to have this conversation about why would you do that for a stranger? And that's not because I'm anybody special. I mean, remember that pile of sinful ledgers? <laughs> I'm nobody special. But my Savior is. And that's who I have chosen to pursue. That is the cost of my life, that my life's not about me, it's about him. And that gives me opportunities to do that. Is your job a mission field? It is. Do you treat it as a mission field? Is your home a mission field? Your neighbors, are you on the mission field to share Christ with your neighbors? I'm not making eye contact with you, Scott, but I know there's an opportunity there. Because God doesn't just give us what's easy. If he did, you guys might know my name, but I wouldn't be here. I'd be out in Hollywood, rich, remember? He doesn't give us what's easy. He doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what he calls us to do. Whether we pay that cost and do it, that's up to us. The very end of that passage that I'm, that I'm working through in Luke 14... What king going to war against another king will not first sit down and, <coughs> and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. What are we at war with right now? I mean, what's, what's going on in the world right now? Anything in particular happening March of 2020 to make it different than March of 2019 or February of 2020? Yeah, there's something going on. This, this virus is out there. And there's a lot of overreaction to it. And there's a lot of underreaction to it. And there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of fear. Are we able, with what we have, to oppose what Satan would love to accomplish with that? We are able to. But are we willing to pay that cost in our personal lives to do that? We can, but will we? Who does this empty chair represent in your life? 
Each of you knows the cost of inviting somebody to join us on a Sunday morning. I mean, right now the pushback might be, oh, I'm not going anywhere where there's a crowd of people. Maybe they don't want to come to church. Maybe they don't really understand what Jesus is all about. Maybe they're picturing that big pile of, of sin written down, and they're thinking, one Sunday going to church isn't going to undo all of that. What is it going to cost you to invite somebody to join us? Are you willing to pay that? Are you willing for that discomfort? Are you able to count that cost in your life? 